Here at Making Movies is Hard, we want to express our support for the writer strike. We encourage our filmmaker comrades to look into how best they can be allies for the good fight. Please go to WGACONTRACT2023.org to support the cause. Making movies is hard, but casting for your movie doesn't have to be. With Casting Calls America, you can post your open roles for free in over 30 local markets nationwide. And when you post your roles, they will automatically post to IMDb Pro to get even more eyes on your project. All actor submissions are delivered to your user-friendly dashboard, making your casting process easy. You can even search our actor databases and invite actors you're interested in to audition to your project. Actors pay a small monthly fee and have all open roles delivered to their inbox each day. Get your project started today. It's casting made easy at castingcallsamerica.com. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. My first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. I'm Liz Manishel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently making others, including a movie called Best Friends Forever. It's a horror comedy. It's great. I'm also a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome WGA writer and strike captain Rob Foreman on the show to to talk to us about everything regarding the WGA strike. We get to hear about what a strike captain does, the strategy behind picketing, and all the details of why this strike is so damned important. Uh, which it really is, people. After that, we play another round of The Game, and we read yet another iTunes review. But first, Liz, how are you doing? I'm good. I am finding new ways to try to network and make my film Best Friends Forever happen. I did the impossible. I never thought I would do it. I joined Slated. I'm on oh, no. Slated. I'm oh, doing boy. Slated, Ulrich. <laughs> oh, I don't like... I have lots of problems with Slated. I know. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know all of the things, but I'm, I went, I'm very awkward. Only in LA do you go to Memorial and then you start talking about the business at the Memorial. So I went to Memorial and a colleague of mine was like, you should join Slated. And I was like, why, why? And he's like, I found, he found three investors through Slated. And I was like, well, shit, it's worth it. It's worth trying. So I'm but, trying. But don't you have to pay them money? Like you, you have to pay them I a percentage them of your earnings? I pay them for script analysis. And they do okay. get a percentage of the investors that they find. But that's what, I mean, a producer who does fundraising is going to take a finder's fee as well. So for me, I was like, it's worth trying. And then the other thing I'm doing is I never accept LinkedIn requests unless I know these people because I I always thought LinkedIn was for like job references and like Mm, I looked mm. at it in a different way. But I'm now saying yes (laughs) to LinkedIn people if it says they're a producer. Mm. So I am trying things that I had previously closed my mind to in effort to just really pound the pavement with this movie because baby's coming in a few months and then and then and then I want to make the movie I want to make the movie Alric so badly I want to make this movie and we need money no I'm like so anti-slated because (laughs) I was a part of slated before they did basically this whole thing where the, the the deal is my understanding unless they changed is that if you have your movie listed on slated you have to pay them, I think it's like 3%, a 3% fee of your total earnings on the movie or something like that. Or your to- 3% they, of your, 3% of your budget. If they find the investors, if they find the investors that the, contribute I, to the, the budget. The thing I saw was that just if you're on. 
Oh, well, that might be true. And then I've kind of fucked us all over. It's like if you're on or you're not, you know, if you find investors or not, you're suddenly now you owe them this percentage. And I was like, hmm. Fuck you guys. Like, I am not going to give give you a percentage. Like, if I do or do not find my investors through your, your, your service. So I remember reading the fine print when this happened a few years ago. It was like before the alternate was made. I did actually meet a, a partner and he didn't actually invest in the movie, but he put a lot into the crowdfunding campaign. And I met him through Slated. So okay. that was really cool. Okay. Uh, and we're like friends still and talk and chat. And like, that's how we met. So I, I like one strong connection that I met through Slated. Okay. But like, it doesn't deserve them 3% of my budget. Screw you guys. I hear you. And I feel a little <laughs> foolish. Like maybe I misread the new fine print. And, and, and now I just wrote like reread contract. It's not too late for me to uh, depart clandestinely from Slated. But also, I'm hearing money. Uh, you said lots of words. They were very important. But what I heard was money, Ulrich. There was, and then, there was some money. <laughs> so like, there was some money. That's where I'm, I'm yeah. at right now. And it's it's but like, <laughs> go on. It just saying? didn't seem worth it. You know, it's like, and then like, I don't know, you have to pay, like paying. I never pa- paid for any of their script analysis, but that's pretty expensive. You know, I just paid like, for it. Look at, I'm a fool. I'm a fool across the board at this moment. I'm maybe it's going to work out well for movie. you. I think if you buy into it, maybe it's good. Because I, I was talking to some filmmakers out of Atlanta the other day, and they were like, yeah, Ulrich, what about Slated? Slated is the thing. I've heard that we should be on Slated. I want to get on Slated. And I just like shat on Slated for like 20 minutes. <laughs> and like, No, you don't. Don't want to be unslated. It's going to be X dollars, X this, X that. Like, it's just not worth it, you know? Follow my journey and suffer through me vicariously. And I'll tell you if it's worth it or not. And I mean, it's also, I think of all these things, because you know I'm documenting the making of my movie, right? I talk about it a lot. So it's like... It, it's this Patreon campaign is is how you find out about the documenting of the movie, but like this is more fodder for for that case study is like how can I investigate whether this really is a pathway or not, and can I help other filmmakers avoid it or go towards where I'm going? So we'll right. see, and I'm happy to report back on the podcast as well. But yeah. we have t- less than 20 days till we get our script analysis back, and if we get Ooh. 80 points or above, we're in a good. I don't know. They give they reward us, and so they give us like pieces of cheese. I don't know. I'm wow. in the rat race of slated. What? <laughs> yeah. How are you? I'm good. I've been continuing to write, which has been great. I, uh, you know, put in maybe like one or two sessions since we last nice. talked. And they're short, 30 minutes, maybe 45. But, you know, I'll get like half a page down or at least some, some ideas down in my notes. So I feel like it's like I'm slowly chugging along and putting effort to that, which is great. I finished another script. I, reading it, not writing it, reading it. So I've read two in the last like month or so now, and then I have two more to read <laughs> that I just got sent. One that like I definitely need to read because it's like with somebody that I I know and I've known for a while, and you know who potentially wants to help me fundraise it, and not just like you know, you know, like most people who have scripts are like, yeah, here's my script, make it happen, like. <laughs> No, you've got it now, right? Like, you're going to make my movie for me. This person's much more collaborative and, like, wants to do it together. So I feel like it's a better a better situation. And the story's really cool. Like, I read the... It was basically a short story he had written maybe 10, 20 years ago that I read. And I was like, this is... Like, of all the things I read from, from you, this is the best one. Aww. And then he... since since So that was, like, 
late fall or early fall last year when, when I read it and was like, this is awesome. And now he has a full feature length script of it in that nice. time since like November. So that's like, I was pretty impressed. Yeah. You know, that he's got the first draft done and he hadn't written, written a script in like years. So it was like kind of fun to, to, to see it happen. So I'm, that's my next thing I'm going to start re- reading today. I have notes IO on the last two, but I'm trying to do my notes like super fast like not like the super long process of notes that I normally would do, like where it's like every page gets a note and like I get like a full like oh. two page breakdown of the script. Like I'm just doing like overall bullets, overall stuff, like super can like fast. And then like if they want to pull more out of me, like I'll I'll answer questions. But yeah, I'm just trying to like you know I used to when I when you read scripts, it used to take me forever to read scripts because I would like read them and then I'd be like taking notes as I read them. It's like that no. is like. That's a humongous detail, like thing. Like I think now I just read them, remember them, and then like write my notes down like right after, and then that you know that usually works. Or just read it, and like if you like it enough that you could forgive the notes, then you go forward. That's you it. Don't even give notes. You don't give <laughs> notes. I never give notes. I never. I never want to give notes. I really don't. But that's a that's a whole notes other are conversation. Helpful, though. Notes are good though. I think people can learn and grow from notes, and I think also. Depending on how I give notes to a writer or to a collaborator, it, it tells me if I want to work with them based yes. on the way they react to my notes. Well, I'm on board like, for that for sure. Yeah, if they react like a you know like a dick, how I think like a yeah like a <laughs> they react like a dick, then you know then you don't want to work with them. <laughs> I love your simplification. <laughs> if they're a dick, then they're out. If they're normal and cool, then they're in. <laughs> yes, it's like. Pretty much. It's a gut a, check. A, a super simplification of the whole thing, but that's good. You know, what is it? What is also a very simple thing that you can do is you can go to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and support the show. This is the way the show keeps going. With a $1.99 a month, you will get access to all our back app episodes. There's now like 350 of them, which is a lot. And like in a very short amount of time, there'll be another 50. So it'll be like 400 behind the panel, just like. It's working what? though. Your strategy Why is working. Are there so many because, episodes. But we, I know we have a lot of episodes because um, <laughs> we can't stop. But like people are actually, it's amazing. People are really, really supporting the show. It's like heartwarming. Yeah. And like, you know, on that note, a big, big happy birthday to Gary Smith. Thanks to Gary for supporting the show and for the love. Gary says, My pleasure. Truly love the show. It's something all filmmakers should listen to. And as for the shout out, he says, thank you. Let's see. Get out there, make a movie and have fun doing it. (laughs) Gary. Nice and simple. (laughs) I like Gary. Gary. That's the best. I love it. And I think that's great advice. Just get out there and make a movie. What else is there to say? You can go do it right now. Also, a big, 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 equally big happy birthday to Jonathan Marbali. Marbali? Marbali. Marbali. Thanks so much for the love, Jonathan. Jonathan has a lot more to say, which is cool. Jonathan says, Ah, thanks so much. Good to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Been listening for a year or so now, I think. As far as a shout out, that's very sweet. I have no idea what would be worth saying. If you mean plugs, I am at Johnny Marbles Films on IG and Vimeo, which is the the best. Johnny Marbles. That's J O. NNY Marbles Films on IG and Vimeo. If you mean antidotes, a relevant one, I guess, is I'm currently finalizing the script for my first feature, an urban romance set on a dairy farm in Connecticut. And your podcast has given me life. So thank you. Uh, I want to see that. I want to see the urban romance set on a dairy farm in Connecticut. I'm in. 
That's like, like you're like Liz is like your your audience right here. She's like your main demo. When can I watch it, Johnny Marbles? Make it. Make is your movie. It, is it ready? Can can she buy it now? <laughs> I would really I would I would eat that up for sure. But yeah, thanks to support everybody and thank you to everyone else who's already joined our Patreon. You guys are amazing. We love you. Thank you so much for supporting the show and keeping us going. It's great. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io. They're a royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on a high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, and global lands like DJI. They even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. You should use our code MMIH to get 20% off your yearly subscription today. But... Without any more delay, here's our chat with Rob Foreman. Rob, can you tell us the elevator pitch for your recent project, Party and Prey? Sure. Party and Prey is an adaptation of a graphic novel, and it's set up at Legendary Studios. And it is about a 60-something gay guy who meets a 20-something gay guy at a nightclub and doesn't realize that the 20-something gay guy has slipped something in his drink. They go home together, and horror ensues. But everybody has secrets, and nothing is what it seems. So this is actually my first studio feature, and I wrote a horror action-themed spec pilot that people at the comic book company read, and we had a general meeting. And after the general meeting, they thought, hey, you know, Rob has written something, In the horror space, we have this queer horror book. There's a wonderful director, Patrick Bryce, who directed the Creep franchise for Blumhouse, who was interested in directing the project. And they were looking for writers, and they were specifically, because of the story and the world and the characters, they were specifically looking for queer writers. They sent me the book to read. And I just, it, I absolutely fell in love with it. It was bold and terrifying and just so, so cool. Most of my career up until Party and Prey, at least selling in TV and film had been original, not adaptation. And this was something that was just irresistible to me. And I had to be the writer who got to do it. I put my quote take together, which really was a fully fleshed out, you know, kind of 20 minute pitch, brought it back to the comic book company. And from what I know, they sent myself and one other writer who I'm not sure who it is to the director. And fortunately for me, the director chose my pitch. We worked on it together and then took it out to the studios and sold the pitch in August, 2022. This is the second wow. time in two hours that Patrick Rice's name has come up for me. No way. <laughs> this is just a very specific reference. Because <laughs> he's was, great, honestly. Yeah. Like, just like a wonderful human being. Oh. And very talented. So. <laughs> what was the duration of all of that? Like, if you could, I, I don't know, did, what is the word? Just yeah, what, the, how time, long the, the timeline of it. I think the general meeting took place probably in October of 2021. You know, you, you condense things when you do the elevator pitch. So I think they sent the book to me in January of 2022. In March, I pitched the comic book company. In May, I pitched Patrick. And by July, we were pitching studios. So this is a a new question that we've been asking, and it's somewhat applicable, but I'm just going to give it a shot. If there's one thing you could change about like your writing on the project or like the way that you've 
been involved with it so far, like what would that one thing be? And it could be story-based, it could be process-based, it could be anything. Oh, that's a tough one. You know, because it is my first studio feature, I think I approached it with a very, I'm here to learn from people who have done it before mentality. And I think that were I to reapproach it, something I've been learning a lot about is owning my power as a creator. I love the notes process. Like I'm not one of those writers who, you know, first draft, best draft. <laughs> In fact, I think this is very much the wrong line of work if that's your attitude. But, <laughs> you know, there there are some things that I think, you know, I could stand my ground on a little bit more on the creative side instead of being like, okay, yeah, let me listen to, to this idea from a producer or a studio executive and just, you know, really flex my writerly muscles a little bit to say, this is why I did this this way. And I think it's the right way. Jumping into our general questions, you've, you've survived the first round. <laughs> Would you be able to ID your various titles? I mean, you're a working writer, but you're also a straight captain, but you're also there. I mean, there's a lot of things that this interview sure. is supposed to encompass. Breaker of chains, first of her name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, so the whole, the whole spiel is, my name is Rob Foreman. I am a television feature now and video game writer. I am the co-chair of the Writers Guild of America's LGBTQ plus writers committee. I am a strike captain and I am a coordinator at the NBC Universal lot during our current strike action. Can you just like sort of define what a strike captain does and like what the responsibilities are? Yeah, the Writers Guild and I believe many other unions um, have adopted a organizational approach that uses this captain's system. So it isn't simply our union's board of directors talking to the membership. Instead, a captain will have an email list that they're sort of the go-betweens between our board and the entire membership. So if you're on, if you're in a room for a show, you'll usually have a show captain. And obviously during a strike, that person transitions to becoming a strike captain. It's really, it's a, it's an up-down method of communication. So if the board needs writers to take a survey like we did a year and a half ago about, hey, what's going on in your career? What are the problems in the industry that we haven't addressed that might make your career better or get you better pay or, you know, just make you stop tearing your hair out at night? <laughs> what are the things that we need to know so that a year from now, when we go into negotiations, we have a proposal prepared? And so those things come, you know, the questionnaire comes from the board but it will get disseminated both through a guildwide email and just reminders from captains of, hey, this is super important. This is about your careers. And this is about the guild fighting for you about things that are important to you. On that same line, what is a lot coordinator? So a lot coordinator does not exist outside of a strike action. You know, strikes are disruptive things that are unusual. I, as a writer, I'm not used to being out on a picket line multiple hours a day, every weekday. So the lot coordinator system are, are made up of captains who have volunteered a little bit of extra time to be part of making sure there are enough captains at a lot to, you know, have someone who is in that organizational system 
on every gate during every shift. So there's sort of a project manager aspect to it, as well as being a liaison with any studio lot security or LAPD or any anything that might be necessary when you're talking about, hey, there are a group of people on a crosswalk and maybe there are dangerous drivers, or maybe there are some construction shenanigans going on with the studio that are blocking off a corner. And we need to report that to a legal authority because this is part of a legal labor action. In addition to that, you know, you've probably seen online, there are all of these theme events that are used as draws to bring members and supporters to any specific lot that maybe is a little underserved, needs more bodies. And so the whoever is organizing those events should be talking to a lot coordinator to make sure they have all of the information about you know which shift tends to need more people where do if if you're able to get a food truck where does the food truck go where's the best parking all, all of these just little logistical things that frankly is good showrunner training but very very much not the normal course of business for a writer so in in setting up a shift like what is your ultimate goal like what are you looking to achieve like the loudest people the most people like what what is like some of the things that you're looking for and like you know in your process i think the bare minimum for me is do we have enough people to constitute a picket line at every gate at universal i am mostly based on the lancashire side of the lot we also have a group that's on the barham side of the lot where there's one gate as well as a quote neutral gate which we can get into because labor law is fascinating. And geometry says that a line is the distance between two points. So in theory, a picket line simply needs two people, one on each corner of a gate. That is not the most impressive showing. So, you know, the goal is, of course, to have as many bodies drawing as much attention so that when a car passes by, they see they see our signs Hopefully they honk, which can, you know, disrupt business inside of the lot. It can certainly be annoying. Again, it's a disruption. This isn't this isn't about necessarily like stopping a car Tiananmen Square style from getting inside the lot, but it is about forcing anyone going inside inside the lot to feel a little bit of shame of I am crossing a picket line because there are workers who are saying that they have been treated unfairly by the people that I'm going inside to meet or to work for. So uh, at Universal specifically on the Lancashire side, we love to have a big crowd at Universal Hollywood Drive, which is where the big entrance to CityWalk is, a big LED sign. It's right off the 101. So anyone coming off of the 101 right at Lancashire Drive is going to see a heck of a lot of Writers Guild writers, and that's going to get attention to our cause. There's also a big gate at uh, Jimmy Stewart Avenue. So we like to have a lot of people there and everywhere else on the Lancashire side. Certainly, it's just about maintaining a presence because it turns out, according to labor law, if we do not have picketers at a certain gate then the studio can say, well, they're not picketing that gate, it's ours again. Mm. You know, they're not allowed to picket it because they stopped picking it. So that mm. that's sort of the... That's sort of the balance. And there, you know, I'm just at Universal. There are, there's Disney, there's CBS Radford, there's Television City, there's Netflix, although they kind of only have one or two gates uh, and hundreds of people. I love the coordinators over there, but they don't know what it means to be understaffed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sony, Amazon, Fox, there's a lot of places around Los Angeles where picketers are needed. And so, 
to backtrack to the the coordinator question, it is all about how do I make sure I have at least two bodies at every point of entry? And ideally, how do I have enough of a crowd to really get the attention and disruption that we're looking for that causes hopefully causes the studio's financial pain to come back to the table and negotiate with us fairly. I have written down eight more questions. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I want to acknowledge that I live right near that universal gate, Langersham, and I have honked. No, no, no. I have honked very, very loudly in support of y'all when I pass by. This is an audio medium, but I just pumped my fist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like happy. I'm like, I think I might have honked at you. Like, that's so exciting to me. That just illuminated something like I was I was going to ask about the neutral gate, but then this idea of a gate reverting back to studio usage if it's empty. Do you have shift times that like, I I assume it's not a 24-hour thing, but please tell me if it is. It's not a 24-hour thing. There are two daytime shifts that we have been employing thus far during the strike, which is a 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. shift and then a 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. shift. There's also what has been lovingly called Dawn Patrol which is our early hours crew, which for those listeners familiar with television and film production, the trucks arrive really early. You know, trucks are driven by Teamsters. They're a union and, you know, they are not to cross picket lines, but we have to set the picket lines up for them to not cross, which means that contingent of writers need to be anywhere where we believe production is happening, which means a studio lot, at least two writers on every gate, <laughs> sometimes at 4am. You know, I think at, at Universal, our, the uh, scripted production that was shooting there was Quantum Leap, and we did successfully stop some of their days of production from going forward. So, you know, that, that Dawn Patrol really did their job. So I kind of want to like take it back to like kind of a, a broader point in the conversation because we kind of just jumped into all the details but like for someone who's listening to this who like maybe heard there's a strike going on but like doesn't know anything about the strike really can you just give us a full like like overview of like why you're striking why it's super important and like what you're looking to get out of the strike? Absolutely. I think that the top line that you don't have to be an entertainment professional to understand, I think it affects almost every sector of industry in America, is that writers over the last several years, especially in a in the streaming era, have been asked to do more with less for less. The big ticket items that you may have heard about, even if you don't know what's going on, are about the advent of mini rooms, or I think is more accurate pre-green light rooms. The pressure on, because of these rooms, on staff size in a television show, where what used to be a normal staff size of maybe 10 or 11 writers for a network television show that was doing 22 episodes a year, for a streaming show that sometimes takes double the amount of time to fill, may only be employing four writers for less for less weeks, even though it takes much longer to film uh, those episodes. And, you know, there's the very, very hot button issue of AI, which is just the question mark of will an emerging technology replace human work? And I, <laughs> I'm i not qualified to talk about that one because I don't really know a ton about it. My, my opinion is that the t- technology is certainly not there yet, but it is really good to be having this conversation now 
in order to protect the value of human creativity from something that at the moment, you know, we call it generative AI, but is really plagiarism software that scours the internet. It, you know, another another term for it is is large language model. It scours the internet, learns from things that already exists, and then you know, pops them together and outcomes something, you know, it's not saying that these emerging technologies should never exist. It is saying that they cannot replace what we do. So we have to have agreements and ideally regulations in place that make it that assure that it's a tool, not a workaround for hiring a real person. And this is this is going to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty, but there is a there is a large financial difference between doing a rewrite and doing an original draft. So theoretically, were we not to be having this discussion right now about AI, a studio could say, you know, the, the thing that I'm working on, it could plug, uh, you know, read Party and Pray of the graphic novel and give me a screenplay based on it. And then they would hire me to do the rewrite of it, as opposed to me bringing, you know, my experiences as a, you know, uh, queer person into it and influencing how I reshape that story from the graphic novel page into a screenplay for a feature movie. Theoretically, I'd be doing the same work, but because it's starting with me, the union contract that expired on May 1st guarantees me a certain amount of money that is is more than just a rewrite. And that's, that's actually something that I would love to make sure that I'm not glossing over because many rooms and staffing sizes, and to some extent, AI have really been presented as television issues. AI is certainly a feature film issue as well, but it, I would be really remiss if I didn't talk about issues for screenwriters, for feature film writers, as well as a major point of this negotiation, because I joined the Writers Guild in 2012. There's been 2014, 2017, and 2020. So there have been three of these negotiations with the studios since I joined the Guild. Every single one of those negotiations, feature film writers have been asking for a what's called a guaranteed second step in their contracts, which basically means if you get hired to write a feature film for a studio, currently they're only guaranteed the first draft. You're not guaranteed a rewrite. And what that has compounded to is a lot of free work, a lot of free passes, not just for, say, a director who's attached to a project like in mine, not just to producers who are working with you, but for the studio executives as well, because all of those rewrite steps are optional and you want to have a good reputation. You want a studio to hire you again. So if they say, you know, hey, could you, you know, could you just do one more pass for us? You don't want to be fired off the project and there's no guarantee that you're going to get paid for another rewrite. So the studios will hold payment over your head as like this carrot to ask you to do more free work. And so the Writers Guild in this negotiation has asked for two things. One, a guaranteed second step in every feature deal which would certainly help with the idea of, oh, no, I'm going to get fired off of this project that, you know, in the in the instance of Party and Prey, you know, I 
read that graphic novel in January 2022, and I was working on it right before we struck with my uh, an iteration of my first draft, uh, my third first draft, <laughs> into the studio on May 1st before the strike deadline. <laughs> and they did pay me, thankfully. But so that's certainly an element of it. I was working on it for over a year, you know, and you you want to continue to work on it because there's a create there's a there's an element of creative ownership. And so then the second part of that is the studios are able to hold these payments over your head because there's no weekly pay guarantee. And so it wouldn't change the amount of money in a contract, but it would basically say, okay, well, the contract says he has 10 weeks to write this movie. So whatever his payment is, let's split it up over 10 weeks, (laughs) as opposed to you pay him at the end when he delivers it. Mm. Both of those issues were a hard no from the studios. (laughs) Oh, really? Wow. I don't know if this is jumping, and maybe we will have to course correct if this is a bad question. But Ulrich and I both produce independent features and I'm I work in distribution and I specifically talk a lot about data transparency in independent feature film distribution. Mm. And the thing that we talk about a lot is the black box of data surrounding the streamers and viewership data and and all the like. Is is that figuring into the argument here? Is that part of does that figure in at all? Yeah, you know, it's been I think it's been phrased in a little bit of confusing terms. So thankfully, I'm a business major. Like I, I, I'm a writer, but I, I was the guy who like almost started a communist club at my business school. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I come at these things with like a little bit of a math brain. And what the streaming revolution did to TV and film was it really diluted the back end, which was where a lot of money was made in television and film and independent film. You know. DVD sales, you know, selling it to exclusive access to a cable network or what have you. And so I think that the drive for viewership transparency is twofold. One, it's to sort of replace what used to be a backend so that we can say, hey, you know, let's use a giant television example, for instance, Stranger Things, you know, Stranger Things does huge numbers, no doubt about it for Netflix and the people behind it, certainly like they were given a a giant overall deal and they shut down production when we went on strike. So season five is delayed and good on them, you know, but the question is if they don't know how much viewership is actually watching the show and it's a lot, how do you, how do your representatives negotiate your deals accurately? You know, so it's, it's not the, the ask for viewership data is not to replace, you know, the residuals that used to happen when you got a re-airing on network TV or on cable or your movie aired on cable. It's I think it's really it's it's a an attempt to reestablish the idea of a back end that an artist when they create a product should share in the success of it. And I think also just you've seen a lot of instances of shows being canceled after one season and it being a real head scratcher because, you know, according to the platform, it was number one for four weeks. Why was this canceled? Why was this not renewed? And I think that viewership data transparency would help with that, you know, help creators know 
hey, just because it was number one, maybe, you know, <laughs> it was just a bad month. Or, hey, like, this is really, can I curse on this? Yes. <laughs> yeah. This is really fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, and get fans enraged. And, you know, you've seen cancellations been re- be reversed in the past because of fan outcry. So what what is the exa- ask exactly around this? Like, is there an a- ask for residuals or is it just simply to re- release data on the shows that air on these networks? You know, it, it's one that I'm a little less familiar with. I can look it up, but I believe it is a residual that, again, it, it, that would be t- and based on viewership data. And it's more of the, hey, how do we replace the idea of back-end profit participation when mm. there is no such thing as the back-end when something is at a streamer? Was there a last straw for you personally? I mean, I understand that the union is inspired. I mean, it's it's collective action. It's as a, as a group, you're making a decision. But like for you personally, was there a last straw? This is a really weird thing to talk about because I unsuccessfully ran for board of directors in 2019 when the Writers Guild and the Association of Talent Agencies were kind of at war with each other. And a lot of the things that we are talking about in our negotiation with the studios right now were things that I tried to bring into my campaign in 2019 because there were things that I was already feeling in my career. That election cycle, the only thing that mattered was the talent agencies. I believe we fought the right fight then, but I you know, think that there were other issues that also deserved some attention. It, it, it Spoiler alert, it turned out that we had a pandemic and there was no strike threat in 2020. So it kind of didn't matter <laughs> if we were <laughs> talking about those things in 2019. But to really answer your question, I had really been feeling the sting of mini rooms and smaller staff sizes because so much of my career has been in television. And I found it impossible to get staffed. I I moved out to Los Angeles in 2006. I did what I still think is a great entry-level career position of working in a talent agency for a year. A lot of people say it's like grad school. You get a stamp on your resume that you can kind of handle any assistant job. And then you go off and you do the thing you really want to do. I worked in writer's rooms and writer's offices on network and cable shows for a few years. And finally, I got on one Lifetime's Army Wives that was in its fifth season. And it got renewed. It was the first time in four years working in the industry that something that I was working on was going to come back. And uh, I had a chance to write a freelance script during season six. And it went well. And it got renewed again and turned out to be for the final seventh and final season. But I got promoted to staff writer. And it was that kind of mentorship ladder that I experienced because I happened to finally get on a show that uh, A, had a great mentor of a boss, but there was opportunity because of these renewals that I finally was able to you know, transition between support staff and full-time writer. And this was in 2012, the 2012-2013 season. I had to repeat the staff writer level on my next show, which was CW's iZombie. And then after, I, I know those two credits like really don't talk to each other. It's like the uh, kind of human drama soap opera on an army base and a almost genre crime of the week show about a sentient zombie who 
works in a morgue and eats the brains of murder victims and gets some of their memories to solve their case. I know they 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 tell a story. Um, <laughs> Wait, but you got to write for Rahul Kohli, my favorite actor. Oh, I'm so God. jealous. <laughs> There's literally no line that you can write that he won't make work. I know. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, no, he's he was he's a dream. <laughs> He's, he's an absolute dream. But, but so, so no, so those two credits, like they were both female centric shows about outsiders. That's kind of how I tie those <laughs> two together. After iZombie, though, I found it impossible to get staffed. And I wound up selling three pilots, original pilots, not adaptations, before I wound up back in another room. And a lot, <laughs> this is like a 17 minute conversation that I'll finally loop back. This is what having a conversation with me is like. My husband says, I, uh, Never let a a sentence go unfinished. (laughs) I'll always come back to the point. So I was unable to get staffed, even though the things that I was writing and the the ideas I was coming up with and the pitches I was taking out were selling to network or cable and just didn't happen to get made. I couldn't get showrunner meetings. And it was a lack of opportunity because increasingly shows were... Going from, you know, Army Wives, we had 11 writers on that staff. iZombie, the season I was there, it was nine. Then it was six. Not on iZombie, but, you know, you, you hear much more six, five, four. And at the same time, the, the problem with these mini rooms is that because they are pre-green light, it doesn't matter how much experience you have. You get the same paycheck someone who has two years of experience and is a story editor gets the same guaranteed minimum weekly paycheck as someone with 20 years of experience who's a co-executive producer. So if I'm the showrunner and I'm hiring people and I have a, I have a limited budget and I only have room for four people, of course, I'm going to hire the 20-year veteran because they cost me the same amount of money. So I was really finding this bottleneck at the low and the, the mid-level that I genuinely believe that if we, in this strike action, are able to get the studios to establish different pay tiers for someone who is low-level, for that story editor, executive story editor, versus someone who is that co-executive producer, will help with, hey, you're paying for experience, not just a body in the room. And two, if we're able to get a minimum staffing size, the the proposal that the Guild put out is not a one-size-fits-all thing, which is kind of how the studios have tried to bill it. It's for every episode up to the first six, you need to have one writer in the room. After that, for every two additional episodes, you need one more writer. So if your show is a six-episode show, six people in the room. If it's an eight-episode show, seven people in the room, up until you have 12 writers in the room, which is at the 18-episode-a-season mark, which, oh my God, can you imagine having 18 episodes of a season of anything these days? <laughs> Seems completely unheard of. So it just goes to the idea of of opportunity. And that was the wall that I was running into. And it really, it really made me question question myself and my talent and my worth because there was just this huge disconnect of like, oh, I could come up with something in my brain and sell it to Freeform or to TNT and they'd pay me to write it. And I couldn't even get a meeting with the showrunner to be a low-level staffer on a show that was, you know, either in its first season or coming back. Even if I felt like I was perfect for it, I had a perfect sample. 
I found it hard to even get read. I had an agent, I had management, you know, felt like I was checking all the boxes and it just didn't make any sense. And so I, I really genuinely feel that some kind of enforcement of there need to be, there needs to be opportunity because otherwise people will quit the industry and you'll lose generations of voices that otherwise would have contributed to our, you know, film and television cultural conversation. Why do you think the advent of many rooms occurred, you know, and, and like why in 2012, 2015, 2016, why not in 2005? Is it just because there's less work or because they figure, oh, wait, these writers actually can do more that if we, you know, four writers can do just as much as eight writers can? Or like, what, what, what is the reasoning behind this? You know, I think th there's the conspiratorial version where you read ill intent into every executive. <laughs> <laughs> which I can certainly give you. And then I think where there's, you know, kind of more of the basic explanation, which is that pilots are expensive. And so when the tech companies came into the entertainment industry, starting with Netflix and, you know, then Amazon and now Apple as well, you know, they have a move fast and break things model. But <laughs> they basically said, well, pilots are expensive, and we're not necessarily going to put everything that we make on the air. So instead, why don't we hire a group of writers to come up with the arc of the season and at least a few episodes, uh, if not scripts for the entire season of television? And we will make our decision about whether we're putting the extra money, the, the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into producing that thing after we have everything written. And I'll go back to you know my business education. I don't think that's a bad idea. I genuinely don't. Where I think we got into problems was tech companies are really known for their secrecy. And so you started seeing talent being siloed off. And if I wasn't already friends with such and such showrunner to know that they were working on this thing and they were about to start staffing a room, there was zero opportunity to get read for it. The way that mm. you know with the broadcast network, Networks and cable still had those traditional models of like, oh, we're making a pilot. Everybody knows the pilot's going to exist. Everyone's going to have read it. And the agents will start doing their thing of, you know, positioning certain clients to get meetings on that show. And so the I think that the secrecy that is part of the corporate culture of many tech companies bled into the it's who you know problem that Hollywood sometimes has. Mm -hmm. Nepotism, my favorite topic on this podcast, by the way. <laughs> there are, uh, you know, a few counter arguments that I just wanted to note to see what your response was. I mean, it's just it's no longer the advent of TikTok, but it's the massive continued growth of TikTok and other user generated platforms like TikTok, the devaluation of content in general. I mean, what is your argument if someone comes up to you and says, whatever, there's like twice as, you know, 10 times as many people watching TikTok than, than TV will convince me. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but no, like, no, no, no. do you I have mean, a response one, for these one, people? My, my husband is a TikTok addict and I finally, <laughs> during the strike, I finally got on it not to consume videos, but to make a little bit of strike related TikTok content. Yeah. You know, I think they're different. They, everyone has a certain amount of attention and a certain amount of time that they can give to a screen. So in that sense, they're competing with each other. 
But I don't think that short form video content and long form storytelling, when whether you're talking about episodic TV or a movie, really are in competition with each other because they serve different needs. I also think in many instances that episodic and feature work is telling a story that mm, ideally lives a little bit longer than a TikTok video. Again, not to denigrate it, but... <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of things on TikTok or Reels or YouTube Shorts or my Instagram story that disappears in 24 hours. It's not meant for oh, I'm going to be hooked on this thing, th- this this character, this storyline, whatever for the next five years of my life. Well, I'm going to, with emot- the exception of the the Heaven Reception video, is I don't know if that's what you thought I was going to say, but have you watched the Heaven Reception videos? No, I haven't. Okay, I'm so sorry for interrupting you <laughs> with that like stupid point. Please go on. No, but I think, yeah, like there's, there are different uses for it. There's, you know, stuff that trends on TikTok. If you tried to put it into even, you know, a network sitcom that airs three weeks after it films, like it's already old so uh, they're 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 different things and i think that i think this is honestly like one of the the reasons why like people need to be writing stories and not ai is that storytelling is a is an intrinsically human thing it is about causing it is is it about feeling something and inspiring an emotion in someone whether that emotion is disgust or cringe or just laugh out loud side splitting laughter there is a there there's somewhere that it comes from and i think that is something that you can latch onto on a character level in episodic television, serialized television, and feature film work and video games. <laughs> that to this point in my experience with short form internet content, you don't get. You, you can have relation, you know, your parasocial relationships with content creators, but you know, I don't know that you're having the same experience as like watching Friends for ten seasons. Yeah. So. To me, it feels like, you know, we were talking about this before, like, why, why is it going to take so long? Why is this, this strike going to go on for 100 days? Like, it just seems to me that the studio should know that, like, that they need to make a deal, right? Like, there's, there's not, this isn't just going to go away. And you're going to eventually say, Oh, I give up back to work. (laughs) You know? So I guess my question is, like, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be? the same thing that it always is like are there certain things of your ass that you guys are already willing to give up in order to get or is it like you're holding strong on everything and they're going to have to give in like what what is the re- resolution of this look like to you you know i am not a member of our negotiating committee so i don't have insight into what our kind of bottom lines are on individual terms that have been part of the deal conversation thus far i think that i think that the studios really underestimated how serious writers were about the headline issues that I mentioned earlier, which are mini rooms, minimum staffing sizes, AI, and feature second step guarantees, because the studios refused to engage in conversation on any of those issues. Wow. They So the strike proves how serious we are about caring about all of those. And over time, they will come to the table. I don't think we're, you know, the the Guild released the the night that it was announced that we were going to go on strike on May 1st, a two-page document that said, hey, this is what the state of the negotiations were as of 
the morning of Monday, May 1st. It's not good enough. It's not nearly good enough. Here's what we agreed to, but here's how far apart we are. And here's where they never even came to the table to talk about. So yes, this will end. I think that there are many ways that it could end. Right now, the Directors Guild is in negotiations with the same companies that we are, and their deal expires on June 30th. SAG-AFTRA starts negotiating on June 7th, and their contract also expires on June 30th. Unlike the DGA, SAG-AFTRA has asked its members to issue a strike authorization vote or asked its members to vote on a strike authorization so that they go into negotiations with leverage of, hey, we will also go on strike if you don't come to the table seriously the way you didn't come to the table seriously with the Writers Guild. I don't think that this industry is really prepared for what it would look like if two of the major unions were on strike at the same time. I don't think we've seen that in, I'm 39 years old, certainly hasn't been in my lifetime. (laughs) So if SAG-AFTRA and if the DGA also, they all we all go on strike. I think it, this is all over in July because the industry can't operate. I want without... it. I want it so badly. I want it to happen. <laughs> right. I want it all to burn down. And it's and it's that weird thing where I'm like, I'm uh, like, being on strike sucks. I would rather be writing. No writer has ever said that sentence before. <laughs> <laughs> I would so much rather be writing. <laughs> but there are, you know, again, from my own career, there are things that we are fighting for that I feel would have made the last decade of my life, of my life not easy, but more possible to have sustain and build a career. And I think, again, that the studios really underestimated the degree to which the writers cared about these major issues and, you know, how long we're on strike. If if it's just us, I have absolutely no idea. I think there are the the framing is that this strike action is an existential threat to the profession of writing. And I think that when that is what has been billed to you and what you really feel in your bones, because all of those hard no's that the studios gave really just said, oh, they would like to keep abusing the current system or leave emerging technologies to the future before it's, you know, and not have any regulations or rules around them so they can abuse them. And then three years later, it's really too late to put the genie back in the bottle. It's uh, what they call the Barbra Streisand effect. I think by saying, no, we don't want you to do this. We, d- we don't want to talk about this. It's all we're talking about. So they'll come to the table eventually, whether it's after the DGA has signed some sort of agreement, whether it's after SAG has the difference between this strike and the 2007 2008 strike where I was an assistant, wasn't part of the guild yet, is that all of these issues are writer specific. I think AI touches on things for directors and certainly for actors, but everything else is really just a writer issue. So if there are AI provisions that make it into the DGA, into SAC's deals with the companies, it's not going to be enough for the writers. And we'll stay out because we've all seen over the course specifically of the last six years since the 2017 strike authorization vote that we did not go on strike because we got a good enough deal. Yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> I know we're almost out of time, but I have to ask one more question. Arik, I'm just yeah, let's do it. Ulrich and I are unwrapped writer directors, and we know a lot of unwrapped writers who want to support the cause. And I think repped writers or guild members 
are getting information directly from the source, advice on on how how not to cross the picket lines and rules of of behavior. But I think the unwrapped are a little bit confused. Yeah. Is there any advice you can give to us on how best to support you? I think, you know, coming out to a picket line, if you are in Los Angeles or New York, where most of the picket lines are, is easily a way to support. There is a charity that used to be called the Actors Fund, which I believe is now the... Oh God, I'm going to fuck it up. Uh, you <laughs> to be called the Actors Fund. Let's just leave it there. That puts together money to support out-of-work artists who are affected by the strike. This is not just writers. This is Teamsters and laborers and IATSE because a work stoppage affects more than just the people who are choosing to pick it to get a better contract. You know, I think that the world of independent cinema is something where you're you're creating for yourself and then you're trying to sell it. You know, you you take it. You know, you're you're putting packages of money together in order to fund. A production and then taking it to a festival or trying to find distribution or in other ways or putting it online because until uh, unless you were to sell something to for instance disney or to netflix or whomever a, a signatory company a part of the amptp i don't think you're violating rules to be working on your independent scripts you know and your independent productions i think that's why they're independent is because they, they're not through the studio system. They're not through the people that we're striking against. And, you know, it was actually, it was, a, a, I think it was a, a sad day when the Writers Guild during the pandemic for staffing reasons disbanded. We used to have an independent film writer caucus. And, you know, it allowed people who worked in movies that were not through the studio system to still have access to Writers Guild panels and to Writers Guild committees, to Writers Guild networking opportunities. And I hope that we can in the future find a way to bring those back because simply speaking for myself as the co-chair of the LGBTQ plus writers committee, we lost a, a lot of really active members because you'll be shocked to know that if you're trying to tell an authentic queer story, uh, often the studios are not the path to do that. And you have <laughs> to go the independent route. <laughs> what? Really? I know. Mind blown emoji. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, I would just say that as as creatives, whether repped or not, or working in the studio system or not, like it's it's all the same fight. And you know, I, I haven't heard it, we're we're four weeks into the strike or uh, at this point as of the time of recording, and uh, I haven't heard a ton of chatter about like, oh, such and such studio was looking for non-union members to sign up to do a rewrite of XYZ. I would say like, definitely don't do that <laughs> because that would be considered scab work that would bar you from future entry to the Writers Guild. But tell the story of your soul, you know, like the, it, nothing is stopping you from doing that because hmm. we need it. Again, like that's, that's the shit AI can't do. <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Rob, do you want to, like, I, I, I can keep on going forever, but I think we might want to just wrap things up. But do, do you have any final words you want to give about the strike or to anyone who is listening, like any way that we can all support you and, and help bring this to a positive conclusion for, for the guild? If you're driving by a picket line by one of the studios, honk the shit out of that horn. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> let's annoy those motherfuckers. You know, just having these conversations and getting continuing to put flesh on the bone of like what the strike is about for people who are not in the industry, for people who love TV and movies, for people who are want to be in the industry so that they know what's going on and that really it does. There are there obviously uh, so many details to it, but it really does just redound to a worker being asked to do more for less and with less. And yeah, you know, retweet stuff on Twitter. I hate that I'm back on Twitter. Uh, I was off. <laughs> and then this brought me back. Uh, my husband says I relapsed. <laughs> you know, just sharing, you know, affirmative words with people who are, you know, if putting on a good face, they're probably burned out because it, it it's not fun. It's not fun. Again, no one wants to be doing this. I would rather be writing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I think just, you know, continuing to kind of have these conversations and explaining what it's all about and why we're doing it and just why it really is important for it to continue until enough has enough resolution has been reached on the major, major issues that the studios simply refuse to engage on. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! Liz, what do you remember from our talk with Rob? That was like yesterday. (laughs) I think we both were really blown away. And I wanted to shout out Dee Dee Fellman. I reached out to my friend Dee Dee Fellman, who is a wonderful writer and just uh, indie film advocate. And I said, do you have anyone for us who would be willing to talk about the strike and answer some questions? And she's like, we think Rob Foreman is your guy. And Rob Foreman was the guy. So I was just really, from the second that conversation started, I was really grateful that we decided to interview Rob. I feel like this is a really important episode. And I'm really proud that we're putting it out into the world. It's really cool. It's advocacy. It's activism. Yeah. No, I agree. I felt like we did a really job. I did a really good job of like asking questions that, you know, I think, you know, no one really gets to hear the answers to. Like no one really talks about like how you coordinate a strike or how you like what a strike captain does or like the immense amount of planning and preparation it takes to like make sure their picket lines are full with people every day. You know, it's, it's crazy, man. It's really, it's really nuts. And Rob really did a good job of outlining the whole thing. And then just like the thing that I really wanted to know more about was, cause I kind of thought I'd read some stuff online. I had kind of like, you know, got an idea of like what the asks were from, from the WGA, but like he really did a good job of like outlining why it's so important. Like why the things that they're asking for are like, like worth striking over and like, you know, that the, the studios really just need to like, you know, give them what they want or at least a version of what they want, you know, sure. because like, it's not, it's not fair that like feature writers get hired to write a feature and they only get one step ever. And they're just expected to write like, you know, Rob was saying like two or three drafts within that first step that yeah. like, you know, you're not getting paid for. And then like, you're never guaranteed a second step at all. You know, and then it's like, then they just bring in another writer to like do the rewrite, you know, and it's just like, this is like a really good thing for the creative process, I think, and just for movies in general to keep like one writer attached to it for, you know, an extended amount of time where they can actually get 
a second draft. Just a second draft. They don't even want a third step. They just want a two step. It's not a lot. Two steps. And then the AI stuff I thought was really important. You know, and then, of course, this writer's room thing, which I didn't even know was a deal, that they were, like, shrinking writer's rooms. Oh, the mini rooms. <laughs> like, yeah. It's crazy. I think there were so many questions we didn't get to ask him. Like, I know you wanted to ask him about his writing oh, yeah. career. Oh, I wanted God. to ask about promotion of the strike. I feel like social media has, like, been a very good ally for all these writers. But he said we can have him back. So maybe when we have him back, we can yeah. fly him with more questions. I, I mean, geez, like we could have had a whole episode just talking about his adaptation of the comic book, you know, and then video game writing, which is like such a fascinating thing, you oh, know, yeah. just like how much writing you have to do for a video game. Because like I play a lot of video games and then the amount of words that come out of these characters' mouths, like not just the main characters, but all the side characters and Whew, it's a lot of it's a lot of writing. Okay, what is next? The game. Oh, the game. It's the game. So it's time to play the game. So for those of you who don't know, the game is basically a game that uh, our producer Eric has come up with, which basically we ask each other an indie film quandary, an indie film question, a challenge per se of uh, what what to do in any given situation. So like if you're, you know, basically like like on, on an indie set, I guess, not any given situation, <laughs> on an indie film like problem. So like, oh, your actor bailed out last minute or it rained when you're shooting your final fight scene that's all outdoors. What do you do? Like these kinds of questions. So Eric comes up with these and then we read them basically on air live. Like I haven't even read the question I'm going to ask Liz. And then Liz answers without knowing anything about this. So she's never heard this question either. So we're doing it on the spot. And without further delay, here is the question of the week. It is... You're shooting a mid-range studio film with major Hollywood actors. Okay, dream scenario already. In the middle of your shoot, one of your actors sustains a major injury and can no longer perform their scenes and stunts in the film as they are currently written. You're right. Eric always goes after the actors. Actors are always getting hurt or damaged or something or like sick or like they can't make it or they bail. Anyways, do you a... Recast the part and reshoot the first first half of the actor's scenes, focusing on close-up inserts. This will cut into your budget as you will have to pay the former actor as well as the new actor. Rework the scenes going forward so the actor will be minimally involved and their part action will be minimal. Rewrite the script and cut the actor moving forward completely. Other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Does it say what level the actor who was injured? Is it the lead? Did it say one of the leads or did it just say one of the actors? Just one of your actors, but I'm assuming it's a lead. I The thing that comes to mind is the Chris D'Elia Tignataro situation with... Oh, yeah. What movie is that? The zombie movie? Army of the Dead. Army of the Dead. Which you like and I don't like. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I have really low standards when it comes to zombie movies. Um, <laughs> I just really like, you know, it's like I'm just in. And part, But part of me thinks of that as like just desserts because Chris D'Elia had some allegations against him and Tignataro yeah. does not. And so it's kind of like a fun little insult to Chris D'Elia. And it's like, I don't want to insult someone who was physically harmed i mean Mm. i don't know what genre this film is but part of me is like can you incorporate the injury into the story in some way like this person didn't do anything wrong i don't know how they got hurt 
I, I cast them for a reason. They said yes for a reason. That I, I wouldn't want to lose everything that they've brought to the film. And so I don't even know if this is one of the options, but it's like, can it be integrated? Like there are characters with different physical abilities in movies. Like just because you have a crutch doesn't mean it needs to be, you have to rewrite the whole film because a character now has a crutch. It could just be a character with a crutch now, right? So how extensive the injuries are is really important to know. And he talks about stunts, but I don't know if this is an action movie. So I don't know if it's really important what these stunts comprise of, but there are stunt doubles. But my inclination, it's tough because it's a Hollywood studio film. I don't think I, in a real world, I would actually get to weigh in on this as a director. In the real world, I think this decision would be made for me by studio executives or my producers. But if I had the choice, I would try to integrate their condition organically as long as they felt up to perform, felt healthy, felt like they weren't being compromised in any way and wanted to keep going. If they didn't want to keep going, I think you recast and reshoot the first half because to rework the whole film, to cut down that actor after like what are probably like dozens and dozens of notes and notes and development meetings to get to the point where you are, feels like it could really create like a lopsided rift of some sort in the core story. Like, uh, I don't know if there's a world where you could cut down a lead, a lead's part for a second half of a film and not really have an incomplete film. And I'm sure Eric is ready for a counterexample. Oh, what is, does he have his counterexample? Is there evidence? He, he has a real life example that this does. goes from, but it's going to be I'll like, say, the movie's better when you cut the actor out. Liz is wrong. That's going to be the counterexample. <laughs> but yes, go on, please. What would you do? No, I think I would actually, you're going to be surprised. You're going to be happily surprised with his answer. Yeah, no, I think uh, as long as it wasn't an action movie yeah, and, you know, it wasn't like a situation where it was like a leading man who like has to, to run in the movie for any reason or there's like a big scene around them standing for any, you know, let's assuming they broke their leg, you know, let's say. Then, yeah, I think I would do the same thing. I would figure out a way to incorporate the ac- the, ac- the injury into the role yeah. and then just make it work, you know? I think that's the best way rather than having to re- to recast and... You know, or do any other shenanigans. Like, I think it's just like, just try to make it work for the story. It's like, as long cool. as it's not, yeah. It's kind of and I cool. think for the most part, it's going to work. You know, for most stories, I don't think it'll be a problem, especially if, like, let's say it was a broken arm. Like, that's like pretty easy, you know, just to throw a, a cast on them, you know, or whatever, or a slaying, or, you know, I think the broken leg is the harder part. But that's why this answer that Eric's going to give us is so much fun. So. This question is based off the film Galaxy Quest, where one of the leads, <gasps> Daryl Chill Mitchell, was involved in a horrible motorcycle accident which left him paralyzed from the waist down. The script was rewritten and production had to add a scene where the actor's double was shot from behind sustaining an injury and the rest of the film, Mitchell was si- filmed sitting down. Wait, hold on. I love Galaxy Quest so Me much. Me too. And I recognize the actor. I don't, I'm trying to remember <laughs> exactly I what remember happened him. in the movie. Well, he... Yeah, so I... Is I he guess he is standing. Or? You know, he's just sitting at the. You know the terms. I don't oh, know the, the terms. Uh, yeah, the cockpit. Right. Yeah. So that make that's so interesting. 
I was yeah. just thinking wow. about, look, I love Mamma Mia and every iteration of Mamma Mia. Anything that ABBA is associated with is what I am in love with as a person. And in Mamma Mia, here we go again. There's a musical sequence where there's a woman in a wheelchair doing choreography and they like just never talk about it. And I I don't even know if I can find articles about it, but it's like we need more visibility for people with different varying abilities on screen. And and it doesn't need to be, let me hang a lantern on this. And this becomes like an activism film because we have someone who's differently abled. Uh, It could just be, look, here's someone with a broken arm because people have broken arms in life. They have broken arms in life. But I love Galaxy Quest. Now I just want to rewatch Galaxy Quest because it's so good. Yeah, I love Galaxy Quest too. But what I also love is the fact that we have a new iTunes review, Liz, that I think you're going to read. I'm going to read it. All right, so it's five stars. And the subject line is, love this podcast. And they say, if you are a filmmaker or an aspiring filmmaker, you have found an astounding podcast. I love your format and the way you dive in as an independent as independent filmmakers. Thank you, Liz and Ulrich, for this awesome podcast. I really enjoy it, and I've taken a ton away from it. And that is from, blah, 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 from the United States. And I say that because <laughs> it is literally A-S-D-F-G-H-I-J-J-L-M-N-B-V-C-X-X from the United States. I applaud you for your choice of username. And thank you for the very kind comment. So I do you realize, I just realized what it is. So it's every keyboard stroke from A to L, and then it's picked up M all the way down to Z again. <laughs> so it isn't <laughs> just row. random. It's all purposeful. No, it's in a row. It's like a zigzag, like a Z, or not a Z, or like a U, I guess. Clever person. Perhaps <laughs> this is a... A cryptid of some short, some sort. Maybe there's this, maybe that V like image is pointing us towards mm. another. Cl- I love National Treasure. It's pointing us towards <laughs> an, another clue, <laughs> and we got to track down the source. That's funny. Either way, if you want to be like, you can send us a comment, question, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at MMIH Podcast, YouTube at Making Movies Is Hard Podcast podcast. We want to shout out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through all the programs they offer. They got a lot of cool things. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Rob for coming on the show. Thanks to D.D. Fellman for recommending Rob. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Brymoot, for being awesome, doing all the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones, California Jones, for doing our social media posts. And of course, thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome. Most, most, most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening and talk to y'all next week. This week, we welcome WGA writer and strike captain Rob Foreman on the show to talk to us everything, to talk to us about everything. Ah, uh, gosh. Let me try this again. WGA. Sounds weird when I say it, but I think it's right. <laughs> you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.